This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We're talking about uh, Bill 148. This is the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act. Uh, a lot of people calling it uh, the minimum wage uh, hiking bill, if you will. Uh, well, committee hearings are being held in Hamilton today. The uh, labor reforms will hike the minimum wage to $14 an hour on January 1st, 2018, and to $15 an hour on January 1st, 2019. It also aims to ensure equal pay for part-time workers, increase vacation entitlements, expand personal emergency leave, introduce paid sick days for every worker, and step up enforcement of employment laws. We'll uh, speak with uh, Ryan Malo, a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on their concerns about Bill 148. But we will begin with uh, Ted McMeekin, Liberal MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale, and joins us now in studio. Ted, thanks for uh, coming in today. Great to be here, Rick. How's your <clears throat> summer going so far? So far, so good. But that's what the guy jumped off the Empire State Building said. Is that what he said? That was so his last far, words? So <laughs> Until, well. Uh, okay, so a few words on the Fair Workplaces, Better Jobs Act committee hearings. And uh, uh, you haven't been in, in the hearings. You're going today, though. But yes. What, yep. have, what have you heard from colleagues and from people who have attended? Well, I'm hearing that there's a wide range of, uh, of views um, uh, that tend to be kind of kind of two camps, I guess. Uh, one is the uh, you're going too far too far too fast camp and the other right. is uh, it's darn well about time that we uh, we brought some fairness to the workplace with uh, you know work the nature of work is changing uh, uh, employment is far more precarious uh, uh, there's some history of uh, of, uh, of making uh, changes in the workplace uh, some businesses not very many there are, most businesses are great but some that really exploit some of the uh, possibilities. They'll, uh, they'll lay off or fire a full-time worker who has full benefits and replace them with three part-time workers, right. uh, uh, paying them considerably less with no benefits, right? And it just, uh, it just adds a deeper darkness to uh, what some think is already a night uh, devoid of stars. You know? So we wanna, we wanna make sure that what we're doing is fair and it's gonna lead to a higher quality of life with mm-hmm. uh, People, and I think this bill speaks very, uh, very much to that. Let's focus on the minimum wage because that's what uh, I believe most people are focused on. How did the government come to the $14 an hour by 2018 and the $15 an hour by 2019? Where did those numbers come from? Well, we've heard from a number of people, a number of advocacy groups, uh, uh, several based in Hamilton, the fair wage folk uh, and, and others who have been advocating for uh, you know, a $15 minimum wage, uh, which, by the way, is about 56% of the uh, average uh, wage, uh, which is a, a moniker as to how we uh, we compare uh, what's being paid to the poverty line. So mm-hmm. the basic position of the government, and it took a while for us to get there, is that anyone who's working full-time should not, uh, as a result of that, be, be living in poverty. So we, we want to create a situation where as our economy um, as our economy uh, grows, and uh, Ontario has been leading the country in terms of both economic growth and and job creation for a couple of years now, and is projected to continue, that the benefits of that uh, that uh, that heightened uh, heightened economy accrues to more people, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you know the gap between the richest of us and the rest of us, notwithstanding the economic growth and and what have you, continues to grow, and so we're trying to mediate that. Who stands to benefit the most just from the minimum wage aspect? 
Well, um, about uh, 29% of uh, Ontarians uh, who uh, work uh, uh, full-time are earning less than $15 uh, uh, an hour. And, um, you know, their case is a, is a pretty solid one. Uh, uh, the benefit is by moving in this direction is we inject more money into the economy and the, the money that is being injected into the economy isn't uh, going to people who are going to lay it up and buy RRSPs with it. They're going to buy underwear and socks for their yeah. kids, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and maybe put gas in the car, you know, and, uh, and have a, a Sunday at the Dairy Queen once a month. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not like, uh, like this is, uh, you know, a big cash giveaway. Right. Um, you know, businesses uh, uh, have certain responsibilities to their workers, and the government's responsibility, of course, is to is to try to create an environment that's fair, fairer for everybody. So, so we had a multiplicity of uh, of people who made comments about uh, the legislation. Marvin Ryder, uh, economics professor here at McMaster, uh, did some work on this and uh, said about uh, two, three months ago. Uh, that uh, this, uh, in the long run, will lead to some inflation. Businesses have to recoup, uh, you know, their their additional cost uh, in the cost of products. But it but it would not lead to uh, to large scale unemployment. In fact, the long term outlook is that this will really really buoy the economy. You know, raise all boats. Maybe not the yachts, but at least all the boats. And uh, so that's uh, that's the goal of the program. So what do you say to folks like, uh, you know, our, our guests coming up after 9.30, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who say that this uh, Fair Workplaces, Better Jobs Act is going to force some businesses to lay off workers or possibly close entirely? Is, is that a possibility? Well, I, I, I would say to them, make your case. Uh, you, know, you know, I had a situation uh, uh, not that long ago when we raised the minimum wage for students, uh, uh, 25 cents an hour. And I had an employer call me and he said, okay, McMeekin, that's the last straw. I'm shutting down. I just can't cope anymore. How come? I said, and he said, well, the 25 cents an hour extra for students. I said, how many students do you have working with you? True story. He said four. He said they each work about 12 hours a week. So you do the math, uh, you know, three bucks times four is 12, maybe $15 uh, a week extra. So I said to him, you're going under because of $15 a week extra? He said, yeah. He said, I just can't, can't cope. I said, are you at your business right now? He said, yeah. I said, well, I've run a business. I said, I, stay there. I'm coming down to see you because you've got a bigger problem than minimum wage. <laughs> right? And uh, anyhow, as it turns out, he'd been borderline with his business for a long time and right. uh, I think was frustrated. Uh, um, you know, there are some businesses that, uh, that might be hurt. Uh, um, generally, there they'd be businesses. I suspect that uh, are borderline businesses, anyways. Um, and that's not to belittle the uh, the concern because sure. we want to uh, give everybody an opportunity to prosper. But the reality is that uh, this is uh, going to be something that businesses can handle. Historically, they have handled. Uh, the wage was frozen at six eighty-five for eight years. We've raised it uh, eleven times in the last fourteen years. We hear the same mo- moans and groans from some people, mm. not, not a lot of people. I'm not hearing a lot about this, by the way. I hear it's a sector-by-sector sector thing. The mm-hmm. ag folk are a little concerned about some aspects, and right. restaurants are a little concerned about some aspects. But generally speaking, uh, people understand the importance of being progressive and uh, taking care of folk that uh, 
that uh, are having troubles, you know, struggling with just making ends meet, mm. including businesses, by the way. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Ted McMeekin, Liberal MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Um, so if the minimum wage issue isn't the biggest issue, what would be the biggest issue in your mind? Well, let me, let me share some, some stuff around that. The, uh, some of the restaurants, uh, uh, restaurateurs have said this uh, whole business about uh, notice of uh, shift changes. Um, you know, some some uh, restaurant uh, employers, uh, um, most are very very good, but some 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 can abuse it. They'll call somebody in and then they'll call them at home. You know, four hours before their shift starts to say, "I don't need you." Right. You know? And it it creates a, a sense of unfairness. So we need to find a balance point here, where where um, um, you know employers. Uh, you know, are required to give at least 48 hours notice. And if, if they're in a union environment and there are uh, agreements that supersede, then they'd be exempt from it. But generally speaking, uh, you know, if they're, someone is on a shift and uh, for some reason isn't needed, other than an emergency like a big snowstorm, that would be uh, exempt. But if somebody then calls, you have to pay them a minimum of three hours because they've set that time aside. They're mm-hmm. doing something for the employer that uh, when they could be doing something else. Some concern about that uh, on, in the ag sector. Uh, we have an interesting situation because the foreign workers program, uh, the feds require that uh, those offshore workers who come and take jobs that arguably some Ontarians, Canadians don't want to take, have to be paid the minimum wage. Uh, we have farmers who... Um, won't admit it publicly, but are actually paying less than the minimum wage. And uh, they feel if this comes into effect, they're going to have to to meet at least the uh, the federal uh, uh, federal um, uh, targets. And, uh, you know, so there's uh, some concern that maybe there's some way we can phase that in. Hmm. Agricultural uh, uh, entities have for many years uh, uh, been exempt from some of certain labor standards, um, and uh, and there's a, a move afoot uh, with with some of our agricultural sector folk for uh, what they argue would be fairer for them, and and I'm open to that. I think that's uh, legitimate. Um, where it becomes really uh, really uh, tacky is when you've got uh, somebody who's working part time, uh, perhaps for an employer who wants to see that happen so uh, they don't have to pay benefits or whatever. Um, uh, you, you know, who's doing the same job as a full-time uh, employee, but getting, you know, 4 or $5 an hour or less. Right. We don't think that's fair. Uh, the uh, the purpose of the committee hearings is to hear from you know, businesses, the public, and, and gather their thoughts on how this is going to impact them, yep. uh, and then have a discussion, obviously, and that's going to happen today uh, here in Hamilton. Do you expect any changes or, or massaging to Bill 148 when these committee hearings are concluded? I mean, is that the, the process that's going oh. to happen? I do, actually. I think there'll be some changes. Uh, we're hearing a lot. Some of it is so technical that even the committee members and the staff don't understand it. Right. And and so we're encouraging people who have a, a, a technical issue, um, a complex issue, to, um, to continue the dialogue with us, uh, ideally in writing, so that we can reflect on it. Mm-hmm. We took the unusual step with uh, Bill uh, 148 of uh, going to a public consultation at first reading, 
Um, I don't think it's ever happened before in, in all, all my years of, of uh, provincial representation. We did that because we wanted to take advantage of the summer and listening to people and mm-hmm. And we're getting, uh, you know, massive uh, uh, groups of presenters everywhere we go. Uh, uh, we're going to continue with the hearings. It'll go all day today. I think there are 50 different presenters. And uh, we'll be taking all that information back. The bill will then arrive. Uh, standing committee will make some, uh, some observations. It will go back to the House for second reading and debate. Uh, after that, it will be referred to a standing committee. And again, there will be a second round of consultation. So... This bill is not law yet, hmm. and uh, and uh, the intent of the government and uh, and I think all people of goodwill is to take the time to make sure that uh, we move forward in a progressive way, but we do it also in a fair way. So is, I expect there'll be changes. Is the deadline though? Because well, I mean, one aspect is raising the minimum wage to fourteen dollars by January first, twenty eighteen, which is yeah. coming up in a matter of months. Uh, is the deadline before the end of uh, when when uh, you guys at Queens Park are done sitting in the fall? Well, the deadline's approaching very soon. I think the deadline for written submissions is uh, sometime tomorrow. Okay, it's been well advertised, and people are. Uh, but I mean, the deadline for you guys to pass this into law. Would be in the fall, correct? Oh, yeah. 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 And I, I've no doubt that we're, we'll be moving to the $14 per hour. I don't think that's something that's going to change. The government has uh, has staked out that territory very clearly. Okay. Um, the move to 15 is a year later. Um, uh, we'll have an election sometime in between. We're mm-hmm. committed to moving to $15. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the opposition parties do. I was going to say, have they given you a sense on whether they would pursue that 15? Well, if if they come into power. Well, Mr. Brown, the PC leader, is not giving anybody a sense of anything. You know, he uh, he say, says we're moving too far, too fast on daycare, too far, too fast on pension, too far, too fast on on rent controls, uh, too far, too fast on this. And uh, I always uh, often kid that I'd rather be part of a government that's tending to move too 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 fast, too soon, than a government that's doing nothing too late. Uh, the, the NDP is a much clearer position. They think this is completely inadequate. They think the, uh, the minimum wage should be above $17. Uh, they think that uh, our proposal to guarantee three weeks of paid vacation after five years of employment should be reversed. They want to see five, five weeks of paid vacation after three years. Hmm. Um, there are a number of other things they want to want to see that would, uh, in, in my opinion, tie the hands of many businesses, not just small businesses. And, uh, you know, so they want to they move at uh, lightning speed uh, tomorrow, right? <laughs> so, we're, so we're trying to find a balance. Right. Uh, we got to leave it at that because we're fresh out of time, but uh, enjoy the committee hearings today. Good luck with uh, the legislation come the fall, and if there are any tweaks, uh, please keep us up to date. Okay, Rick, appreciate the time and your interest. Thanks All so right. much. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We are continuing our discussion uh, about the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act. The committee hearings are continuing today. In fact, they're in Hamilton today. They have uh, just gotten underway. The labor reforms, as you all know, are going to hike the minimum wage to $14 an hour on January 1st of 2018. They'll go up to $15 an hour on January 1st. 2019, Bill 148 also aims to ensure equal pay for part-time workers, increase vacation entitlements, expand personal emergency leave, introduce paid sick days for every worker, and step up enforcement of employment laws. Now, business groups, many of them, 
aren't very happy about this. They say the increase comes too quickly for some companies to absorb the added costs and will mean some will have to lay off workers or close entirely. Our next guest is Ryan Malo, the CFIBs, that's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, a senior policy analyst for Ontario. And Ryan joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. So the CFIB says Bill 148 will stifle job retention and creation, resulting in fewer opportunities for low-income earners. How so? Well, we're seeing uh, what amounts to a 32% increase in the minimum wage coming over the next 18 months, with the bulk of it, about 23%, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, coming January 1st, 2018. Uh, And it's an awful lot of increased payroll costs for businesses to have to accommodate in a very short period of time. Uh, And from our membership, we've heard that that's going to force them to make some tough decisions. In some cases, they're going to raise prices and try to absorb Uh, But in some cases, they're going to have to uh, reduce hours. They're going to have to cut jobs outright. And a big one we've been hearing is that they're going to have to put a freeze on hiring plans. So future jobs, especially for young workers, uh, are going to be few and far between. So too fast and and too soon is, is what you're saying, or too high and too soon. Yeah, absolutely. So how is this going to affect businesses in Hamilton? Let's focus on, uh, you know, an economy that is now well diverse. It's not just the steel industry anymore. We're talking about education, talking about healthcare and research. How is it going to affect this community? Well, it's going to sort of have a ripple effect. You'll have some larger businesses who will say, you know, maybe we can we can absorb the hit and we can pay more. But it's a lot of the smaller guys that are going to have to make adjustments. I mean, not just the minimum wage increase, but you look at the entirety of the bill, the introduction of uh, extra vacation after five years, the introduction of sick days, um, the pay equity that makes part-time the same as full-time. A lot of this is going to require an extensive amount of tracking. And when you're talking about a small business, say, you know, a small pizza shop down the street or a convenience store or a mechanic's office, um, it requires a lot of HR work. And these guys just don't have HR departments. So it's a lot of red tape. That's going to be an added cost to business owners. It's going to be mean more hours for business owners to uh, put in on the administrative side so they can't get at doing what it is they do best, which is running their business. Uh, And when it comes to employment, again, it's going to put uh, pressure on business owners to increase the salaries that they already have, uh, and it's going to make it difficult for new hires. We're chatting with uh, Ryan Malo, Senior Policy Analyst uh, for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML, Hamilton's News Talk Leader, Rick in for Bill today. Uh, earlier on the show, I asked uh, Liberal MPP Ted McMeekin for Ancaster and Dundas Flamborough Westdale, uh, who stands to benefit the most by this Fair Workplaces, Better Jobs Act? So I'll ask you, I'll ask you who is going to be the biggest losers in your mind? Uh, the biggest loser, hands down, it's going to be small business owners, and young workers looking to break into the job market. Hands down, and I I think to answer the question too, the biggest winner uh, is absolutely going to be unions. That's who's driving this process. It's not the uh, employee. It is the unions that are pushing hard for this. So those, um, I'm picturing that university or college student coming out of uh, their education, they can't quite find, and we've seen this, uh, you know, really from coast to coast, it's not just an Ontario thing, they can't find employment in their specific field, they have to go find uh, a part-time job or a job that doesn't pay a lot, you're anticipating that they will be the biggest losers. Absolutely, and and I've been there, I'm not that far removed from there, I've been, you know, you see contract work, you go contract to contract via Labor minister likes to talk about the kid living in the parents' basement. I lived upstairs, but I was very much that kid. Um, it, it's going to make it much more difficult uh, to, to find that first job, to get that foot in the door. And, you know, people often 
forget that, especially on the small business side, that's often offering people their first work experience, that first leg up, the first line on the resume to really get you going. Uh, and without that, it's going to be much more difficult for young people to break in. Proponents of the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act uh, that is uh, currently in the committee hearing stage uh, in Ontario with uh, meetings here in Hamilton today, uh, they will say that uh, doesn't this current minimum wage create uh, things like employee uh, disengagement, lower productivity, higher turnover, uh, increased recruitment recruitment costs, and many for small businesses, uh, ultimately customer dissatisfaction. What do you say to that? Uh, we've heard that. That's been a common refrain from uh, the advocates in this committee, and, and frankly, I would disagree. I mean, I, I think if the goal here is to reduce poverty, which is also what we've heard from advocates, then we need to look at what actually does that. And increasing the minimum wage doesn't do that because it almost always comes with a reduction in jobs or reduction in hours. The real way to get at reducing poverty is to increase employment, to encourage jobs, to create jobs. So I think that the government should really start looking at sound policy options instead of sound bite policy options and consider what's actually going to help. It may not look as good. It may not be as uh, politically attractive as something like Fight for 15. It doesn't wrap itself up in a nice slogan. But if you want to actually help incentivize employment, don't discourage it. So you're not buying into the argument that raising the minimum wage would stabilize employment and and obviously with better paid workers, they're going to spend more and boost the economy. No, and and that's been a a frustrating one to listen to. And I, I will grant that certainly those people that keep their jobs and their hours and see a boost in pay will benefit. Absolutely. But overwhelmingly, we've seen that that's not what happens. We've seen very recently in Seattle where they made the jump from 11 to 13, they're not at 15 yet, um, that they saw a mass reduction in hours across the board that actually ended up costing workers $125 a month. Um, so when you end up losing money because of a policy, I can't see how they're going to be spending more locally. You mentioned uh, reducing poverty uh, by creating jobs. What are some of the things the government should be doing? Uh, well, first and foremost, we would look at... Uh, finding ways to ensure that people are keeping more monies in their pockets. And I think that starts with a increase in the personal income tax threshold, uh, as well as measures that reduce the uh, tax burdens on low income earners. I think that is the key start. Then we look at uh, incentivizing youth hiring, finding uh, hiring credits, and then reducing the red tape burden for business. I mean, the best way for a business to operate is for the government to kind of get out of the way with onerous regulations. And we know that they are trying to. Um, but, you know, really let the business operate and flourish. And when a business flourish, more money comes in, more demand comes in, more jobs are created. Sounds like there might be a lot of red tape with this Bill 148 for, for, for small businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a concern. Uh, we heard uh, from a law firm presentation in Ottawa noting that uh, one of the things that these measures do is introduce 175 new employment standards officers. And we're concerned about the amount of power they're going to have and the direction they're going But the law firm actually warned that it won't be nearly enough to tackle the red tape burden that this is going to create in the province and that the government really needs to consider what the cost of that is going to be, Uh, which is why one of the things that we're really pushing hard for, and we know the business community in general is pushing hard for, is an economic impact analysis. We think it's irresponsible to move forward without one. Uh, Really, the brakes need to be put on, and the government needs to determine what's going to happen to the economy before they move forward with it. We're chatting with uh, Ryan Mallow, Senior Policy Analyst, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. Um, I understand that the CFIB has been shut out of tomorrow's hearings in Toronto? 
We were. We were one of the first groups uh, to put in in mid-June, and we found out uh, late last week that we have, in fact, been shut out. The committee decided that they didn't want to hear from us uh, or our 42,000 members. And that's concerning for us, not just because we represent so many business owners uh, and, you know, sort of provide that voice for them, but also because take a quick look at the uh, list of people who are on to present, and it is fairly lopsided in favor of the labor movement. So in regards to the minimum wage, and again, this, you know, Fair Workplaces, Better Jobs Act is much more than just boosting the minimum wage, but a lot of people are focused on that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it's going to get to $15 an hour. Um, when should we get there? What What is the proper cycle that you and, and the CFIB would like us as a province to reach 15? So a couple of years ago, the government sort of did this whole consultation process on, on how to work minimum wage, and they decided that it should be uh, tied to inflation. That was something that uh, our members could get behind. It made it stable. It made it predictable. You get an announcement in March and the increase will come into effect in October. In fact, that's still happening this year. The minimum wage will increase from 1140 to 1160, uh, effective October 1st. Um, but it allowed business owners to plan. Um, and that's really our big concern here is that we were caught so off guard that the government hired two independent reviewers to conduct the Changing Workplaces Review, which is the basis for this bill, and explicitly told them that minimum wage was off the table. And two years later, the final report comes in and suddenly we're advocating for a $15 minimum wage. Um, so we go for a system that is stable and predictable uh, with no surprises. We had uh, Ted McMeekin, as mentioned, a Liberal MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale, in studio uh, earlier on this hour. And he suggested that the minimum wage issue, as much publicity as it has received, is not the biggest issue in this Bill 148. In your mind, what is the biggest issue? Well, I think it's twofold. I think the minimum wage is a serious issue because for a large number of businesses, we really are talking about make or break. I know that some people have accused the business community of fear-mongering on that end. It's simply not true. Uh, There are a large number of businesses in this province that just cannot absorb that kind of hit in their payroll over that small a period of time. Uh, The second side of it that has us very concerned is enforcement. I mean, we have a business resources unit that our members can call into when they have issues or are trying to figure out how to navigate forms and whatnot with government. And one of the constant complaints is that the customer service at the Ministry of Labor isn't great to begin with. Now the Ministry of Labor is being moved towards more of a law enforcement agency. That's the government's term for it. Uh, And we're very concerned about the powers that the inspectors are going to be able to have on site when it comes to issuing fines. Uh, The director will be able to issue liens on property, uh, impose warrants, uh, as well as set interest rates on outstanding payments. So all of that power is very concerning to us. You mentioned uh, many businesses are in that make or break scenario. How many would be broken by this legislation? That's something we're still looking into in terms of putting a hard number into it. We're looking at doing the economic analysis that the government won't. Um, But anecdotally, in terms of the calls that we've got in, um, it's big. It is significant. And even for those that absorb it, I mean, we get calls from business owners who say, look, I can survive a $15 minimum wage, but my profit margin and the the money that I reinvest in my business, the bricks-and-mortar operation that I was going to build and going to hire more employees – that's entirely out the window now. So there's that primary concern about the businesses that can't survive. Then there's the next step concern about those businesses who are just able to squeak it out. And I mean, no one wants to shut down. They will make an effort to squeak it out. But what happens to them when there's no money to reinvest and they they're sort of uh, see their growth stagnate? When do you expect that economic analysis to be uh, completed? Uh, before the end of the summer. 
are um, businesses in larger centers uh, more affected by those in, in smaller centers, or, or, or is this act not going to discriminate? Actually, what we found from other studies that have been done, it's likely going to be the opposite. And that, again, is our concern. I mean, when we talk about, uh, we hear Seattle, San Francisco, we really are thinking about Toronto or the GTA. We're not thinking about Tweed or Moosonee or Timmins. Uh, and it's just the, the buying power is just different in the smaller communities. And so a $15 minimum wage will actually disproportionately affect the more rural and smaller towns in Ontario. We've actually had some mayors come out to committee uh, warning the government about that. Anything else that uh, you wanted to add or that I missed? Uh, nope. Just, again, we, we've urged the government to put the brakes on this one, to slow down, to think it through, uh, and to really find something that's going to work, that encourages employment, and that is sound policy, not just sound bite policy. Ryan, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Ryan Mallow, Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, giving the, uh, well, certainly the opposite view of what our first guest had. Uh, Ted McMeekin, uh, Liberal MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A new study from the Fraser Institute that shows that Ontarians pay the highest hydro rates in our country. The report used data from Statistics Canada and shows from 2008 to 2016, residential hydro costs in Ontario rose 71%, while the average increase across Canada was 34%. The Evaluating Electricity Price Growth in Ontario study did not include this year's 25% hydro rate cut, but it shows that between 2008 and 2015, electricity prices in the province increased at nearly four times the overall rate of inflation. My oh my. Here to join us is NDP energy critic and MPP for Toronto Danforth, Peter Tevins. Peter, how are you? Hey, Rick, how are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, surprised by this uh, report? No. no. <laughs> is anyone in Ontario surprised by this report? I mean, we they put together some useful numbers here, but we've seen these numbers before. The, the um, province put out numbers showing that our hydro rates, when our bills went up 100%, from 2006 to 2016. So I'm not surprised at any of the numbers here. I, I'm still a bit taken aback, as I think most people are, uh, by how high they are compared to other jurisdictions. Um, more than double. You're paying more than double in Toronto what you'd pay in uh, Montreal. And I, my guess is Hamilton's pretty pretty darn close to that. So I, I think people already feel the pain. Um, what this report has just confirms what people know, that they're paying way too much that the Liberals have done a terrible job with hydro in Ontario and this privatization stuff that the Tories started, they continued on and we're paying for it every day. You mentioned uh, Toronto in comparison to Montreal. This this study basically compared the hydro bill for a typical household using 1,000 kilowatts per month in in selected cities. As of 2016, Toronto's uh, hydro bill is $201.23. Montreal would be $83.08. It is, uh, I I mean, Winnipeg's $97, Calgary $109, Vancouver $114, Toronto almost more and, and in some cases more than double in any of those communities. So I guess the question is, I have a series of questions, but have we reached the breaking point? Well, yeah, in terms of people's response to this and their ability to pay these bills, absolutely we have. I mean, that's why hydro is such a hot issue in Ontario, a hot political issue. That's why the Liberals are borrowing tens of billions of dollars to reduce our bills for a few years so they can get through this election. And then their hope is that 
um, giving us buying our, buying down lower prices with our money is going to make us happy enough to reelect them. Uh, they understand how angry, how hot people are on this issue. Yeah, it has reached a breaking point, without a doubt. I mean, that's why earlier this year we brought forward our own plan to reduce hydro bills and deal with these underlying problems, the privatization, because people can't take it anymore. They need to have serious solutions to the prices just skyrocketing up. The Liberals don't have a serious solution. They're just going to borrow tens of billions of dollars and... The Tories, well, they started the privatization. They don't haven't come forward with anything. If the NDP comes into power, we're going to have an election, uh, you know, next year. And you know, nowadays you really never know. I mean, we saw what happened in the United States. A- anything can happen. And I know. I, I thought Hillary was going to. Win. <laughs> well, and, 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 figure, right? and this is not to disparage any party, but uh, you know, a- anything can happen. So I guess yeah. the question is, can you reverse what the Liberals have done in terms of contracts, in terms of this borrowing uh, to pay down the road? I mean, wh- what's the NDP's plan here to reverse course on this uh, hydro uh, rate uh, increase? Well, there are a few things. I mean, first, we're committed to taking the, the HST off people's hydro bills and not just the, the grant that the Liberals are putting in place, but actually change the tax law so it's a permanent thing. We're going to get rid of mandatory time of use. Uh, Right now, people are forced to pay a higher rate at the time of day when they're using the most power. It doesn't make sense to us. It isn't actually saving the system much. Um, By the way, I I hate that thing. I I absolutely hate that time of use. Many people do. I mean, I'm out of the house most of the day, so I'm good. But there are an awful lot of people who are home (laughs) making toast when the prices are at their highest. Yeah, and and it's especially seniors, too. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... Making that a voluntary thing for most people, this is not going to, what's in place isn't going to help them. Making it voluntary will help them. They'll cut their bills by an average of 10%. And then for people in, in rural and northern Ontario, dealing with the exceptionally high charges that they're dealing with, actually taking some of the money that's in the system now, reducing those rates so that people will see up to a 30% reduction. But, but beyond that, Rick, the whole question here is we've got to end this privatization of Hydro One and the ongoing privatization of the hydro system. You know, we're proposing over time to buy back Hydro One so that we own it, so we can control it, so we can set the rates. And I, I know you hear all kinds of junk from the Liberals saying the Ontario Energy Board, the regulator, is the one who sets the rates. Well, frankly, the Ontario Energy Board is very much just a puppet of the provincial government. They do whatever they say, and they aren't going to be protecting us. They haven't protected us in the past. La- so la- last, last question for you. You mentioned Hydro One. They've just signed a friendly deal to acquire a U.S. energy company. Yeah. How is that going to work in the buyback? Um, we're going to have to think that one through because we just found out about it last night. Uh, I'm very worried about that purchase. I think if you look at other companies that have gone on acquisition sprees, uh, when they make mistakes, when things don't work out, then they go back to their base customers. And frankly, if things fall through, if there's a big problem with this purchase in Washington State, then Hydro One's going to turn back to the customers in Ontario and say, gee, we really have to have the money to continue functioning. I guess we're just going to charge you. Uh, that, I think, is something that people in Ontario never want to see. They don't want to be paying for corporate mistakes. They don't want to be protecting the investors. They just want power they can afford so they can live their lives. That's what they want. Peter, got to run. Thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of the day.
Hey, Rick, real pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Peter Tabbins, uh, MPP uh, for the New Democrat Party of Ontario, also the NDP's energy critic uh, based out of Toronto, Danforth. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A new study that shows Ontarians, surprise, surprise, pay the highest hydro rates in Canada. The Fraser Institute report using data from StatsCan uh, showing that from 08 to 2016, residential hydro costs in Ontario rose 71%, while the average increase across Canada was just 34%. It's called the Evaluating Electricity Price Growth in Ontario Study. It did not include uh, 2017 statistics, which obviously incorporate the 25% hydro rate cut that the Win Liberals have put in. But it does show that between 2008 and 2015, electricity prices in this province increased at nearly four times the overall rate of inflation. Our next guest is Tom Adams, an independent energy and environmental consultant, and joins us now. Tom, how are you? Just great. How are you, Rick? Not too bad. Uh, Man, oh man, Ontarians just love paying high hydro rates, don't we? (laughs) We keep voting for them. Yeah, I I guess we like it so much. Uh, well, it, 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 we it, uh, we have been voting for a higher uh, power rate. Um, uh, you know, we, we've been on this train for quite a while. Once upon a time, Ontario was a relatively low-cost electricity jurisdiction, um, and we built our economy around that. Uh, you know, the, the the way we constructed our houses and and. Uh, Invested in uh, industrial capacity and a lot of things uh, out there were were geared to affordable electricity. As electricity has uh, has rocketed upwards, um, the implications for households and for electricity intensive employers it's been pretty drastic. I've got a tweet uh, from a listener named uh, Don on Twitter. If we produce the most hydro, shouldn't we pay the least? What would Alberta think about paying the highest gas prices? Yeah, um, <laughs> we, we, we actually, <laughs> one of the reasons we have high prices is because we produce more electricity than we can consume. Um, uh, electricity demand in Ontario has been dropping since 2005. Um, uh, at the same time, we've been adding new generating uh, capacity like Topsy, just uh, you know, hand over fist. And, and so as a consequence, what we've ended up doing is paying generators a very large amount of money to not generate power. Uh, and that's one of the factors that's driving up the cost of electricity. You know, we, we shut down as a province coal-fired power plants. Uh, we created more solar energy farms. There, there's a lot of them, especially in southwestern Ontario. Um, uh, wind turbines, you'll see a lot of those as well. Uh, yet we continue to pay more for electricity. Should, should it not be the opposite? Or is it just based on all these contracts that the province has signed? Yeah, the, the, um, uh, this is, again, this is kind of all back to politics. This is the way that the, you know, in a normal, in the normal world, right, if, uh, you know, if there's, if the producers of tomatoes are just producing a lot of tomatoes, uh, um, the, you know, in, in August, the, the price of tomatoes goes down. Um, uh, in electricity, when there's an excess supply of electricity, the way the Ontario government's got it organized, 
um, uh, during times of excess supply, the price goes up. Um, uh, so uh, electricity is somewhat different than the than the, the real world, um, you, know, you know, where the, the rest of the economy operates. Um, and the, what these findings from the Fraser Institute do is they 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 put some kind of documentation around what you know a lot of people have a sense for. If, if you've been paying a household or a, a business power bill over the years and kind of keeping track, you've noticed that um, uh, your your power rates have, have really gone uh, uh, up in a bad way. So what should or what can the provincial government do right now to combat these high hydro rates? What should be the first step? Well, I mean, there there are solutions out there um, uh, to, to uh, start kind of managing the, the problem. Um, uh, that, that address the fundamentals of, of too much supply, too much expensive supply, uh, uh, you, you know, silly, wasteful programs throwing away uh, like really hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on, on, um, uh, on wasteful uh, conservation programs and whatnot. Um, so there, there are constructive solutions, but rather than pursue those constructive solutions, what the Ontario government is instead focused on is um, a plan to defer the costs uh, of electricity, at least until after the next election. So we've got this new plan that uh, isn't captured in the data that's used by the recent Fraser Institute study that um, uh, would have electricity prices drop 25%. Um, but the trick is that, uh, it, uh, that it's just a temporary drop uh, that you'll have to repay uh, um, uh, sometime after the next election with interest, of course, um, uh, to you know cover the, the gap in, in this deferred costs that uh, the, the Ontario uh, government has the gall to refer to as a fair hydro plan. From the point of view of electricity consumers in the future, there's nothing fair about us just shipping a huge amount of our electricity costs off into the future. Yeah, it's more like the delayed hydro plan. Uh, We're speaking with uh, Tom Adams, uh, independent energy and environmental consultant here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Um, So I get I get that we're not past the point of no return. I mean, I, I guess it can get worse. Oh yeah, yeah, and there and there are also uh, you know positive things that can be done uh, uh, to fix this. But you know the the problem that we're in right now is not a new problem. Uh, you know, it's not something that suddenly appeared on the radar screen here. In fact, the the Fraser Institute study. Um, uh, that you know released today, it, it uh, its findings repeat findings that uh, fr- uh, were published in a study a year and a half ago uh, by um, another institute, the Consumer Policy Institute, and and they they made um, uh, really in a way very similar uh, findings. Um, uh, in their case, broader findings than the Fraser Institute study because they put Ontario's soaring electricity costs in a North American perspective, and they found the same problem 
If Fraser found that we've got the fastest rising rates in, in, in Canada, that's true. But the, the Consumer Policy Institute makes the point, we've got the fastest rising rates in the United States as well. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're number one here in Ontario. We, we're, we're leaders. The question the electorate is going to ask itself uh, come next year, and I only have 30 seconds for you to answer this, is whether a new party in power will make any difference. Uh, well, uh, hard to do worse than what we've been doing, uh, you know, for the last 10 years. We've really got to stop digging this hole deeper. That's not a ringing endorsement at all. Tom, thanks for the time today. So good. Thank you. Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant, uh, talking about uh, Ontario's sky-high, highest, in fact, hydro rates in Canada. The study compared the hydro bill for a typical household using 1,000 kilowatts per month in selected cities as of 2016. Uh, Toronto by far and away higher than any other city compared to Ottawa, Halifax, Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, Montreal. And it shows that the hydro bill for a typical household in Toronto, which is probably not going to be a lot different than Hamilton, soared by 26, or pardon me, I had dyslexia there, 62% from 2010 to 2016. That compares to 36% in Vancouver, a comparable city. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.